0: Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian kabat and Sean Karnikian. Sean, uh, we are here on COVID-19 lockdown. I think it has now been one year and three months.
1: It has not. She's joking. Please don't put that into the universe. Uh, but we are in the midst of the lockdown, so we're recording this.
0: feels like a year and three months. That's It that's does. It does. it
1: does feel like a year and three months.
0: But well, we're using our time wisely. Yeah, we hope we're keeping you entertained or keeping you company. And what we do on these podcasts is review recent cases, uh, and the Court of Appeal is still issuing uh, opinions and cases that are going to affect our practice when we all come back uh, in full swing. And today we're covering what I consider to be consumer cases—cases cases that affect sort of consumer issues as opposed to um, any other particular area. Uh, we will look at Ninth Circuit, United States Supreme Court, and all the California courts, um, Supreme Court, and the various. Court of Appeals as they go through the um, the whole state. So today, Sean, let's go over what cases we're covering.
1: We got a very interesting set of cases today. The first one's a false advertising case that has to do with the word diet when it comes to sodas. Um, next, we're going to cover a case that has to do with the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act um, and the various definitions and what type of consumer and what what means reasonable under those cases. Then we're going to look at a Lemon Law case and how to determine who a prevailing party is and when a party is entitled to fees after prevailing in a Lemon Law case. And lastly, we're going to look at a very interesting case that has to do with the Privacy Act and the ability of someone to record a
0: conversation between two people. Remember, you can find us online. And where else can they find us, Sean? They could find us on social media platforms. Uh, just don't
1: go outside your house to find us. You can find us online at KBK You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and on anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. So tune in, subscribe, and leave some feedback or you know, con- contact us with complaints
0: about Brian. Thank you. I appreciate that, Sean. So today we're going the first case we're gonna cover is Becerra, but not Javier Becerra, the attorney general of the city of California. Someone named Shanna. Brissera, who sued Dr. Pepper 7-Up, and the gist of this case, uh, out of the Northern District of California, so decided by the Ninth Circuit, the gist of this case is that the argument the plaintiff raised is that the use of the word diet in Dr. Pepper, particularly, was false misleading and constituted false advertising. Now, on a note here, before Sean gets into the details of this case— Diet is something that Sean and I are very closely associated with and and strikes us very close to, you know, our heart and soul. It hits close to home. That's right. We're we're like we're almost
1: like nutritionists. We're very big on eating healthy and, you know, big fans of French
0: fries and foods like that. right? Right. Anything that goes in the fryer goes in us. (laughs)
1: that's weird um but this case was brought under the california consumer fraud statute as a class action and the plaintiff was alleging that the use of the word diet in uh the diet dr pepper for example implied or it made a promise it promised weight loss healthy weight management or other health benefits that was the contention
0: you know I'm a plaintiff's guy, and I I like plaintiff cases. And more often than not, I'm on the side of the plaintiff. This one I had a pretty hard time with, arguing that the word diet and Diet Dr. Pepper would mislead consumers to believe, believe that the soda pop itself would likely cause weight loss and promote weight loss. Now, I'm the first one to tell you that if they ever create a soda that you can drink and you will lose weight by drinking it. I'm buying cases of it.
1: Yeah. We'd be big fans. They would be sponsors for the show or we'd be promoting them for free. Even the Brian might rename the law firm after that product. Um, But, but, all kidding aside, the the test when it comes to these California consumer fraud cases is uh, re- it's a reasonable consumer test. Would a reasonable consumer understand diet to imply a promise of weight loss, weight management, or health benefits? And the court says no. They look at they uh, they look at the
0: definitions, Brian. Right? Don't
1: they pull up dictionary definitions even?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the, the one I, as I as, as I said about this word diet soda is that diet soda has almost become a lexicon in and of itself, of a, a word in and of itself that just denotes a different type of soda pop that doesn't have sugar in it, that um, isn't necessarily healthy. I don't think anybody thinks that diet sodas are healthy. They just have a different taste. So they looked at four different dictionary definitions of using the word um, basically diet And and the concept of diet and they all refer to like the use of the word diet soda, or diet. They looked at a diet,
1: the adjective, not dieting, like the verb. They looked and and all of them meant imply some sort of oh, it's a soda or a food that has less calories or less sugar. Not that they promote health or weight loss, right?
0: Right. Not he is dieting or she is starting to diet, but the word diet as an adjective. And every single dictionary refers to the word diet and uses as a usage diet, diet soda, diet soft drink. Um, yeah. So, so and- what the
1: plaintiff is arguing here, you know, when you kind of look at the way the court analyzes the term diet, the plaintiff would have to prove that somehow the reasonable consumer would understand the term diet used in describing a soda would imply that that soda affirmatively somehow makes you lose weight. And as Brian said, that does not exist. We've
0: looked for it. Right. And what they actually looked at here, though, with respect to the legal analysis is what do you look at when you're considering California Consumer Protection Statutes and the court said it's it's not it's it's not a mere possibility that something may be misleading. It's really a reasonable uh, consumer test. It's whether or not um a significant portion of the general public or the targeted consumers would be misled under the circumstances. and And that's effectively the test. And they said, yes, the plaintiff did commission a survey here. But we, we, we question the survey results, and we don't even think we need to reach the survey because we just think that a reasonable consumer would not be misled into believing that Diet Dr. Pepper promoted weight loss.
1: Yeah, so, and it doesn't so, matter if someone unreasonably uh, can interpret it to mean that. Just because someone is being unreasonable and interprets it to mean weight loss, that's not enough to render it false advertising or deceptive.
0: What's the next case we're going to cover today, Sean?
1: Next, we're going to talk about Stimson versus Midland Credit Management. It's a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal case. It came from the uh, District Court for Idaho, um, which I didn't know was part of the Ninth Circuit, but you kind of forget how big the Ninth Circuit is.
0: Very big. Very big Ninth Circuit. It's very big. That's one of the arguments that conservatives have always made until they've now been able to pack the Ninth Circuit, that the um, Ninth Circuit is too big and needs to be divided up. But be that as it may... Let's get on to what the facts of this case are.
1: So Mr. Stimson had defaulted on payments that he owed on an HSBC credit card in around 2008. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Midland Credit Management bought the debt um, and they were trying to collect on it. Uh, Now, in March of 2017, well past the six-year statute of limitations for collecting on a debt like this, Uh, Midland sent a letter to Stimson, identified his balance and asked and laid out a bunch of payment options for the next that would expire in 30 days. And then it described the benefits of paying your debt, which include putting the debt behind you and peace of mind. That's that's how it described the options there and why Mr. Stimson should pay that.
0: But it actually did more than that. The letter then went on to specifically say the law limits how long you can be sued on a debt and how long a debt can appear in your credit report. Due to the age of this debt, we're not going to sue you for it or report payment or non-payment to a credit bureau. So the letter actually stated that. But in this case, the plaintiff was arguing that nevertheless, the letter violated the Fair Debt Collection Act, by um, a number of, by three specific ways. Now, I, the the court ultimately, sort of to take away the mystery here, the court ultimately threw the case out. But I took issue with one of the three arguments for why they said that they rejected the plaintiff's argument. So two of the arguments I thought were weak, one of them I thought that the plaintiff actually had um, a good argument on. So let's go through those um Those three grounds. And the first one is that the plaintiff argued that the letter, when it's talked about the statute of limitations, it was still deceptive. I read you the language before, but the plaintiff said it was nevertheless deceptive. The court disagreed. And it said a person who is unsophisticated regarding financial matters, but is still capable of making basic logical deductions, would not be deceived by the language when it said we will not sue you or report you to a credit agency. So that yeah, was- I
1: found that to be the most interesting part of this case where the court discusses this standard here of the least sophisticated debtor. Um, it says, although the least sophisticated debtor, which is what we're using, not like a reasonable, it's kind of like the reasonable person standard for these types of cases, although they're unsophisticated, they're not the least intelligent consumer. So there, there's some level of intelligence or sophistication you give. And even then, they wouldn't understand this to imply what the plaintiff was arguing um, the letter says.
0: So then the third argument, I'm going to skip over the, what I consider to be the good argument that they rejected. The third argument was that Simpson, the plaintiff pointed out that there were several statements in the letter that misrepresented the benefits of paying a time-barred debt and were misleading. Remember, one of the things they said was there's a benefit to paying this debt. And they they said um, it really misled the consumer because uh, it assumed that the debt was extinguished when the statutory limitations ran, and this is untrue. So let me explain that. Let me unpack that and then comment on it, Sean, which is the, the debt wasn't extinguished. The debt still existed. It's just that you can't sue in court for it, which is an important point that they bring up. It's not deceptive or misleading because it says that we can't sue you. It doesn't say we the debt's gone. The debt is still there, right?
1: Because the debt is not gone, because the money is still owed just because there's no judicial mechanism for collecting on it at that time. doesn't mean the debt's gone. You still owe the money.
0: Right. So the court said that's... That's not deceptive. That's that's clearly um, a legitimate claim that we, you still owe this money. We just can't sue you for it. I think so we agree with that, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with the first and the third. The, the, now I'm going to get to the one I don't agree with, which is the argument the plaintiff made was that the letter is deceptive or misleading because it does not warn the debtor regarding the potential dangers of making a payment on a time-barred debt. So in some states... Many states, in fact, you can revive um, a contested debt by paying any portion of it. So it starts a new statute of limitations. You owe $2,000, you pay $500, they now could sue you for the $1,500. And what the plaintiff argues here is that in trying to entice the plaintiff to pay, the the debt collection company was really trying to trick him or trap him.
1: I like that argument. I agree with that argument. And I don't agree with how the court came down on that argument.
0: So what the court ultimately said in this case is that um, you look at it as, as a whole and in its individual parts. And in both cases, they find that the letter itself is not a violation of the act and they throw out the case. So that's our second case. What's our third case?
1: Our third case is Patel versus Mercedes-Benz USA. Uh, that's in the 2nd District Court of Appeal, and it comes from the good old Los Angeles Superior Court. Um, and this is a Lemon Law case under the Beverly Song Act, or the Song-Beverly Consumer Warranty Act. And it involves a plaintiff, Patel, who brought a lawsuit against Mercedes-Benz, arguing that the navigation system was faulty. Um, and it ultimately proceeded to trial. Then at trial, it was discovered that even though Patel's the one that leased the payment, uh, I mean, leased the vehicle, he wasn't making the payments. His friend, Fayaz, uh, was the primary driver who was making the payments. So the jury ultimately, they, they prevailed, plaintiffs prevailed, but the jury didn't award damages to Patel. They only awarded it to the co-plaintiff, Fayaz, because they believed he was the primary driver and he was the one that was leasing the vehicle.
0: Right. Well, the first thing the jury did was make a specific finding that the vehicle was defective under the definition of the Song Beverly Consumer Warranty Act by saying that it had a defective part. So um, even though Patel never paid any money, he did prevail. Then they awarded $20,000. Really, they awarded it to both of them. But the argument the defendant raised was, well, Fayez is the only one who's going to benefit from the $20,000 award in this case. Because he's the one who actually paid for the car and he's the one who actually drove the car so, but winning a, a, a case a consumer case for under the lemon law is the gateway to making an application for attorney fees
1: It doesn't matter the the net monetary recovery doesn't matter in these types of cases this isn't like a general just uh, the prevailing party attorney fee clause or statute this is very specific the net. Monetary recovery doesn't matter. Ultimately, they proved that the product was defective. They proved that the you know, Mercedes breached the ex- express warranty, so they're entitled to their attorney's fees incurred in proving that fact. Doesn't matter on whose behalf they proved that fact.
0: Correct. And what they what the court looked at here was they're both prevailing parties, and the prevailing party in any lemon law case. Uh, is entitled to make an application for attorney fees, and so um they both are have their application so the the Patella had, had his application thrown out now they're able to go back and make a bigger application for more attorney fees okay, good but then the other issue that mercedes benz raised was they said that Patel should be judicially stopped from claiming that he was suing on behalf of Faez and um in this, that
1: argument um because ultimately, he went forward with it, and he won, and he prevailed at trial. So he can't be judicially stopped from doing that. And and when we talked about this earlier, I, I said, I was thinking, if they made this argument, maybe at summary judgment or something pre-trial, that would be a valid argument. Uh, but but I think it fails here at this point in the Court of
0: Appeal. says Yeah, that well, apparently also, they weren't deceptive, because they testified in their depositions, that that was the case and that was the situation. They didn't lie about it. And then when they came into court, they didn't make any misrepresentations in the record. And there's no support at all that Patel, whose name was on the title, didn't fairly and fully disclose who the actual beneficial owner was. And same with respect to finance. So interesting issues. These Lemon Law cases are you know particularly hot right now, and there's an awful lot of them out there um, which I don't know if that just means that the plaintiff's bar is really super creative about finding these cases or if there's just a lot of cars being put out on the market that are that are defective and have all kinds of problems. But it's a good law. It, it protects cool. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I hand it to the lawyers to do these kinds of cases that really are helping people, you know, with real problems. All right. Our last case today is Smith versus Loan Me, Inc. Loan Me, Inc. Are you on the phone right now, Sean, calling Loan Me, Inc. to see if they'll loan you money?
1: I I am. Brian doesn't pay me enough. Can I take an an advance, a payday advance?
0: Anything I pay you up so much.
1: (laughs) Um, Interesting case comes out of the Fourth District Court of Appeal. Uh, It was, I believe, originally in Riverside, this case. And this involves – so let's start out with what the facts are here. Someone named Jeremiah Smith calls Loan Me, Inc., looking for some type of a
0: loan or maybe he's him. you already got the facts wrong, but that's, I okay. got it wrong. His wife. Told. Got the facts wrong. You're just 20 seconds out of the gate and you get the facts wrong. That's okay. They called him.
1: They called him, they called him back or they were trying to reach his wife and the conversation starts and it's an 18 second conversation where he says, my wife's not here or whatever. And they hang up during this conversation. There was a beep at some point, And after that beep, a recording started on Lone me's end. No announcement about a recording, no disclosure, no nothing. No one told him he's being recorded.
0: Right, and, and I think that they, although the Court of Appeal doesn't really reach this issue at all in this case, um, and this case is about whether or not it's it's per- permitted to record telephone calls, the first issue, in my mind, is is a beep even remotely sufficient to tell you that your phone call is being recorded? I vote no.
1: I, 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 I don't vote
0: so. I Sean and I agree on this case largely. We, we agree this case was maybe wrongly decided too, right? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it has implications. So anyway, what, what, the the statute here that's kind of the, the the focus of this is the California Privacy Act, um, which is actually a penal code statute. It's codified in section uh, six thirty and and going forward six thirty two point seven is the one that specifically doesn't allow for recording of a phone call without consent. Um, And the court does a very thorough analysis of the statute. Um, Right,
0: and so that's where we really start with this, which is, you know, I've always grown up as a lawyer believing that it's improper to record telephone calls unless both parties consent to the recording of it. I've had situations, I'm sure, as everybody has, where somebody says, do you mind if I record this? Or there's a recording that says, your phone call's being recorded. So the first thing the court looked at is they said, this particular Privacy Act was enacted really in 1967 to prevent the people from being, the people of the state of California from um, technological advances that would allow illegal recordings of their, of their phone calls. And I'll point out also, Sean, that the statute itself, although in the penal code, it also has a civil penalty, right? Yes, it does. It allows for
1: a civil uh, private right of action.
0: So, um, in fact, that was the specific intent of the legislature was provide for that. So then, uh, what happened in 1967 was this statute was basically um created to include the private right of action in 1985 it was expanded to include cellular telephones and then in 1990 it was expanded to include cordless and cellular telephones um and it really said any every person who without the consent of all parties intercepts or receives and intentionally records or assists in the Interception and reception and intentional recordation of the communication is liable under the statute, right?
1: Without the consent of all parties, I think is the key phrase here that that totally frustrates me.
0: Without the consent of all parties, that to me is the key provision here. And the court then says, as a side note, it said, had Smith answered on a landline. The statute would not apply because it only applies to cellular or cordless telephones, and I don't know if any of our listeners even use a landline anymore
1: no I mean maybe in the office or something but but yeah it's it's weird that that delineation is there, and how is that how does that help anyone? because the majority of consumers I would say, are probably on cell phones now, so I don't know how this protects the public.
0: If that's Even how a ninety-three-year-old right. mother uses a cordless telephone. Right. So I don't know if that's particularly relevant to our analysis here, but I thought that was interesting. And then we get into the concept of who this applies to, who the statute's supposed to be applied to.
1: And the court here ultimately, you know, says this applies to somebody else that's eavesdropping. It doesn't apply to the parties to the call, because by just being on the call, they do this weird analysis. And they say that by being on the call, you're consenting because all of the parties, since you're on the call, you can't possibly be eavesdropping. Um I mean, I, I can't find a way to reconcile that with the language that says a person who intentionally and without the consent of all parties records the call is violating the
0: statute. Well, they look at, they look at the legislative intent, and the first thing they say is it's clear and ambiguous. We don't need to look at it, but we're going to look at it anyways. And then they say the legislature's sole concern was eavesdroppers. That's what they said it was. It was eavesdroppers, people listening in. But then why did they say without the consent of all parties? That doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's inconsistent with its own with the stat, the fine, the the ruling is inconsistent with this, the language and the statute and the statutory intent. Um, And but they ultimately keep going back to that, that this needs to apply or this does apply only to third parties or eavesdroppers that don't have permission.
0: Yeah, I don't get it at all. I disagree with this. And what I really wonder about this is, is this decision trying to upturn the rule we've had in California about both parties consenting to the recordation of a telephone call? I don't know. And if it is, I hope the Supreme Court takes a look at it, um, or at least depublishes this decision, because it just seems bizarre to me. I don't think this is what the law was intended to protect. I think that the concept now that one side... Can record the other without their permission, which is what this seems to imply, would be a substantial um, uh, turn away from from what I've known the law to be my entire legal career about recording telephones. I uh,
1: mean, this this a case like this goes to kind of underscore how far behind the law is uh, from where technology is. We don't have clarity as to whether or not a party and a phone call can record the other party and whether one has to be on a landline versus a cell phone versus a cordless phone. How are we supposed to, how is the law supposed to now keep up with Uh, you know, being monitored and tracked online and cookies being placed on your browser when you're on the internet. You know, we've struggled with this before. We've had cases like this.
0: This state has the most advanced privacy laws in the United States. And to think that this decision is saying, well, we have all these privacy laws over here, but somebody recording a telephone call that they're on, not an eavesdropper, is okay, is bizarre to me. There's something wrong here. So either the court the Supreme Court needs to look at this or depublish it, like I said, or the legislature needs to look at this because this is a potentially really bad decision.
1: Yeah. That's Um, all we got John. that's all for today, folks, and thank you for tuning in. You could find us online at kbklawyers.com. We have a bunch of other podcasts we've done, so you can go back and listen to them. And if you like hearing us ramble on and, and, and keep you company in these lonely times while you're isolated, please go ahead and do that and get in touch with us. If you have any interesting issues you want to talk about or you want covered on the show or have other ideas, we'd love to hear it. But thank you for
0: doing that. Yeah, reach out to our firm. Let us know if there's anything that we can do for you. Any questions we can answer in these times, kbklawyers.com. It's Brian Gabitek, Sean Karnikian. That's it. Thanks.